0: Welcome everyone to episode 103, Leukemia and Stem Cells. I'm Dr. Kiki here with Dr. Dalen James, and this is the Stem Cell Podcast. All right, everyone, welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies. Thanks so much for tuning in. How you doing over there, Dalen?
1: I'm hanging in. As the weather gets cold, so too do my spirits, you know, my sense of excitement. I'm cooling off, Kiki, and I'm just I don't know if it's a depression, but it probably is. I'm feeling the weight of my entire life up to now. Like, you know, I owe the world something. I have a lot of pressure. So that's how I'm doing. How are you?
0: Wow, that's that's heavy and deep. It's rainy here. Fall has officially started. I'm wearing sweatpants. I'm pretty happy.
1: <laughs> I'm happy for you.
0: Okay, well, let's be happy. Let's let's have an uplifting, happy show and get down to some business. Make sure you check us out at StemCellPodcast.com where you can not only subscribe to our newsletter, but you can also find all of our past episodes and other great resources. And, of course, you can follow us on social media at StemCellPodcast on Twitter, StemCellPodcast on Facebook, and don't forget... Subscribe to us on iTunes and Stitcher so that new episodes will download automatically to your phone. Now, we have a great show today, and we're going to discuss a really cool discovery in the world of stem cell biology with Dr. Catherine Coombs from the University of North Carolina School of Medicine. In a recent publication, Dr. Coombs looked at the process of clonal hematopoiesis. This is this process when blood stem or progenitor cells give rise to a unique population of clones, within the blood that are different. They're different from the other blood. And so she found that this contributes to certain cancer progressions and malignancies. It's really important stuff. I'm looking forward to it. But before we get into the interview, you ready to round it up, Dalen?
1: Yes, almost ready. But for this week's roundup, we want to share apropos hematopoiesis news, another one of on 20 weekly science newsletters. Hematopoiesis news is free and keeps readers up to date on the latest research. I'm sure Dr. Coomb's work was just up in there. Also events, science news, policy, and jobs in the hematology world. Subscribe at www.hematopoiesisnews.com. Hematopoiesis is tough to spell, so look it up. A lot of vowels,
0: a lot of vowels and consonants. Do the autofill.
1: Let the (laughs) autofill handle it if you can. That's right? right. And for now, we're uh, done with the plug. Let's round it up, Keeks.
0: Okay, so jumping right into it, kids. Kids are our future, right? Well, over the last 40 years, the number of kids and teens with obesity has significantly increased worldwide. And we know that obesity contributes to a lot of health problems. And so this could pose a problem globally into the future. In 1975, there was an estimated 5 million girls and 6 million boys who were obese. But in 2016, those numbers went up to an estimated 50 million girls and 74 million boys. We're talking a factor of 10 here. This is according to a report that was published October 10th in The Lancet online. The increase in obesity, however, that's it's interesting, has slowed or leveled off in high-income countries for the most part, but it's growing in other parts of the world, especially in Asia. And another interesting point here is that in the weight categories, there are five of them, moderate to severely underweight, mildly underweight, healthy weight, overweight, and obesity. The researchers defined obesity as having a BMI around 19 or higher for a five-year-old, up to around 30 or higher for a 19-year-old. Now, globally, more kids and teens, 117 million boys and 75 million girls were moderately or severely underweight in 2016. So this is more than were obese. But they're expecting that because of the globalization of poor diet and inactivity due to urbanization, that that number, the obese number, is going to outweigh, outrank, those that are underweight by 2022. So it's on a fast moving upward trend. It's great to move away from kids being underweight because we know malnutrition and being underweight can affect brain development and health overall, but we don't want to skew the other direction either. So is there something that we can do about processed foods, sugary drinks, and activity levels for kids moving into the future?
1: I don't know, man. I really just don't know. So let me get that straight. You're going to go from having all these millions of people underweight, and now we're going to outpace the ones who are grossly overweight. So we're really doing a big flip flop, and it's all in the developed world. And this kind of makes sense, I guess. They're assuming this Western diet. Is that what's going on here? Oh no, they're catching America.
0: Yeah, yeah. The uh, undeveloped countries that are developing, becoming more developed, they are. Yeah, they're catching America. The disease. That is... <laughs> Oops, sorry. You caught America. Ah. No care. <laughs> yeah. Um, another global survey moving forward. This one has to do with honey. It's so sweet, but you know what? According to a report in October sixes issue of Science, three out of four honey samples tested contained measurable levels of at least one of five common neonicotinoid pesticides. Mm. We know that neonicotinoid pesticides, these neonics, are correlated and related to issues with honeybee health and honeybee decline, and not just with honeybees, but also with other pollinating insect species, as these chemicals are pesticides that are aimed at getting rid of insects, certain insects that when the pollinators come in, they're exposed to it, they bring it, the bees especially, bring it back to the, to the hive, and it's ending up in the honey. Study co-author Edward Mitchell, who's a soil biologist at the University of Neuchâtel in Switzerland, says on the global scale, the contamination is really striking. The pesticides used on many crops grown in different climates, but the traces of chemicals showed up even in honey from remote islands that don't have a lot of agriculture. Another researcher who was not involved, Amro Zayed from York University, said, I used to think of neonicotinoids as being a localized problem next to a small set of crops. These pesticides are much more prevalent than I previously thought. The paper involves crowdsourcing of 198 honey samples from around the world, where friends and colleagues sent honey from their home countries or where they they went on vacation, 86% of the North American samples contained at least one of the five commonly used neonics that were measured in the study. Only 57% of South American ones did. Almost half of the samples globally contained more than one type of the pesticide. And so this is evidence that bees are very often not just foraging in one location, but multiple sites that are affected by pesticides. If you're worried about human health and how these neonics might be getting into our human physiological systems, the pesticide levels were below what has been established as safe for human exposure. But the fact that it's so widespread is potentially cause for concern for native pollinators.
1: So the neonics, that's like, are those a new Monsanto type that built in, like the GMO, or that's something they spray?
0: No, it's it's a sprayed on, yeah.
1: So we're eating it. Twofold now. You know, I have like three, four big tablespoons of honey a day. I use tea as a vehicle for honey. I need to find another
0: source. <laughs> Organic. Go organic.
1: Yeah. Can you get that? Does that exist? Can I How get my How do you own know
0: bees? if the bees are only going oh, that's to organic what I mean. flowers? That's
1: what this study pretty much just told us, right? <laughs> yeah. That they range farther than you think.
0: Yeah. Multiple sites. Absolutely. In a study that was funded by Harvard Business School, we, okay, so we know studies of firearm safety, gun safety, are not allowed to be federally funded. So funding has to come from elsewhere. Some researchers, Deepak Malhotra, who is a negotiation and conflict resolution researcher with an economist, Michael Luca, and a doctoral student, Christopher Poliquin, they got funding from Harvard Business School to look into the question of whether or not mandatory waiting periods between the sale of a gun and its delivery could save lives in the United States each year if implemented nationally. Every year, 33,000 Americans die in gun-related incidents. Some states have mandatory waiting periods, others don't. The regulations vary from place to place, and so it's really unclear which of the measures prevent gun violence. And other research from other countries has suggested that a waiting period can help to reduce violence with guns. So they took a look at data from 43 states in Washington, D.C. that had waiting period laws in place for at least a year between 1970 and 2014. They compared guns per capita to homicide rates in states with and without the laws over the same time periods, and they found that if there were mandatory wait periods... There were on average 17% fewer murders and about 10% fewer suicides. But this is just correlation, right? So luckily in 1994, there was an act called the Brady Handgun Violence Prevention Act that mandated background checks for all handgun purchases from licensed firearm dealers nationwide and a five-day waiting period to carry out these checks. 19 states that had not had waiting periods suddenly got them. They looked at the data, and they found a 17% drop in gun homicides and a 6% drop in suicides.
1: Wow. Perfect match.
0: And then in 1998, this mandatory waiting period went away because of the instantiation of computerized background checks. Some states kept their own laws on the books, but in the 17 states with waiting period laws today, researchers estimate that about 750 gun homicides are avoided each year. And so if all states had mandatory waiting periods, we would save almost a thousand lives every year.
1: It's a no brainer.
0: Yeah. So hopefully we can move forward with external funding for studies such as these so that we can have data driven policy moved forward for gun safety. Let's have this conversation, people. Let's do it.
1: Let's just forget the conversation. Let's just skip to the end where we put in the wait period. (laughs) Can you really not wait? Who can't wait to get a gun? Bad yeah. guys. It's
0: just true. fascinating that there is, you know, such a large percentage of these, you know, these moments of passion, crimes of passion, homicides, suicides.
1: Makes sense. When the guy comes into your gun shop and he's like sweating and angry looking, you know, make him take a breath.
0: Cool off, man. You can have it in five days. our Or woman. Or I, woman or woman. Kiki, I've seen you angry. I don't want to get I said man in the colloquial kind of way. Yeah, me too. Me too. <laughs> Finally, we find out that hey, just like humans and rats, dogs also consolidate memory and learn while they sleep.
1: That's a pretty exclusive club, Kiki.
0: <laughs> it's just basically because I don't think humans, researchers rats, have and dogs. That's yeah. pretty
1: much it. Dolphins, maybe.
0: I don't think they've they've looked at that, but yeah, it's it all has to do with how many studies have been done on which species, looking at brain activity during sleep after instances of training on certain tasks. In this particular study, researchers trained 15 pet dogs. Small sample size. I've got issues with this study personally. They trained 15 pet dogs to sit and lie down using English phrases instead of the Hungarian that they already knew. And then their EEG activity while they slept. So the dogs took three hour naps. And during that time, they had slow wave brain activity that lasted for several minutes, which we know is important for Memory consolidation in humans and rats. And within these oscillations, there were sleep spindles or bursts of activity that lasted about a half of a second to five seconds that looked like trains of fast rhythmic waves in the recordings. And these also are known to support memory learning, general intelligence, and healthy aging in humans and rats. This is the first time it's been studied in detail in dogs. And so showing that these dogs during sleep had these sleep spindles similarly to humans and rats. Assuming that, hey, this learning took place, memory consolidation took place, but it didn't really take place very well. <laughs> 30% females had more spindle sessions per minute than males and performed better than during testing than the males. 30% of the females learned these new English words compared with 10% of the males. That's kind of worse than chance. So I'm having some issues with the results of this study. It's like, of course, some dogs are smarter than others. Some are better than, you know, like people, rats, individual differences, but they have sleep spindles. So that, you know, sleep, it's good for learning for dogs too.
1: They learn how to like run. That's all I've ever seen a dog do while it sleeps. Move its little, little hind legs. So cute.
0: (laughs) So cute. Unless they're Dumb dogs. I could start singing that song from Annie.
1: Please.
0: I'm done. Can you tell me some stem cell news?
1: First, we want to start by adding another entry to the lexicon of stem cell subtypes. You know, they have the ground state, which is like the original guy from the blastocyst, And then there's the epiblast stem cells. These have been derived in mouse and human. And now we have what may be the most versatile stem cells ever created, enabling researchers to better understand biological mechanisms behind failed pregnancies, for instance. Okay, so let me elaborate. Pentao Lu of the Sanger Institute in Cambridge, UK, and his team, they developed these stem cells from cells taken from a very young mouse embryo. They gave the cells a cocktail of chemicals that prevented them from maturing, and that trapped them in this, like, primordial state, which they're calling the expanded potential state. These are expanded potential stem cells, or EPSCs. We're getting confusing now with the number of acronyms we have, but the idea here is that unlike any other stem cells that have been derived to date, these are able to create extra embryonic tissues, placenta, and yolk sac. These are the tissues that are essential for supporting embryonic and fetal development, And many early pregnancies fail because of, you know, as to now, unknown issues and problems with these tissues. But maybe now we'll have an insight. Mm -hmm. Lou's team also found, incidentally, that you can rewind other types of stem cells. So this has been kind of a hallmark of all these protocols. First, you derive it. Then you find that you can make other cells turn into it. And they do the same thing. They can take iPS cells or embryonic stem cells. And they can rewind them into these EPSCs, quote, erasing all memories in these cells and taking them back to the equivalent of a blank piece of paper. That's a quote from Dr. Liu. So, you know, this is exciting work. It's a new type of stem cell. You can get more tissue types, I guess. from it. But to me, I think it really appeals to the narrative of these stem cells and regenerative medicine being a means of getting this, like, primordial goo we can make into regenerative apparatus. Do you ever see that movie, The Fifth Element, Kiki?
0: Love that movie. They, put,
1: mm-hmm. they take that little piece of the lilu and they put her in the machine and then they make her from scratch with, like, all the thing and the tube and they're, like, reconstituting her body. Come on. You know that part. I love you that.
0: Know it, yeah. List. Yeah, yes. she knows.
1: So that's what I think we're talking about. People want some clay. And we're moving now to a quote equivalent of a blank piece of paper. So the narrative, I think, is very sexy. We've got the goo. We can now make everything under the sun with these stem cells. You know, it's a big paper. It's a big paper. I think we've got to look at what these cells can do and what the real, how close we can get to approximating the kind of complex biological, physiological relationships that are going on in these extra embryonic tissues. But it's a major step forward.
0: I think they need a, either a new acronym, though, or embryonic pluripotent stem cells are EPSCs and now we've got expanded potential stem cells that are EPSCs. And I mean, are they expecting that these EPSCs are going to overtake the other EPSCs in lab work? <laughs> yes. My acronym rules your end. acronym. <laughs> One
1: SC will rule. All right. That's and right. it might be this.
0: But yeah, but this is exciting.
1: If you got an SC that you want to share with the group, come on, write in. We'll put them on the, We'll put you on the news. That'd be a good one.
0: This is cool.
1: Speaking of stem cells, you know, it's not just about the most, the best stem cell. It's about how you get them. Okay. We've got something called the Tooth Cracker 5000. Do you know what this is for, my dear?
0: <laughs> not crackers? <laughs> In, yes. At Christmas time?
1: I <laughs> <No. laughs> For cracking your teeth, just as you yeah. knew. But, I mean, here's the rationale here. You know, if you've had your wisdom teeth out, you know that those are some big A teeth. And, uh, you know, you have the extraction sometimes. And if you can get it without breaking it all into pieces, which is miserable and you have to go under. But if they can just extract it, which something they can do, it's a great source of stem cells. I mean, the potency and ability of these cells to reconstitute different tissue types, I think that's open to debate. But nevertheless, another stem cell source, you can't frown on it. might be useful and it's, if it's sitting there. However, the problem is you can't really get to that tooth root pulp in these cells. If you drill into the tooth and you get heat, that lowers the number of cells that can be harvested. If you use water to rinse the tooth, the, tooth, the water could have corrosive elements. Oh, the enamel particulates from all that drilling can contaminate the pulp. So to solve the issue, these researchers at UNLV, they developed... The device they call the tooth cracker 5,000. I don't know. The 5,000 has got to be a <laughs> joke, Right. <laughs> but um, the toothcracker, it makes sense. They can extract 80% wow. of the stem cells in the pulp. Huh? How about that? It has a clamp, holds the tooth in place while a blade carefully cracks it. The method doesn't damage or contaminate the pulp, results in perfectly halved, beautiful, bisected tooth. And they proved the technique was effective. They tested on 25 teeth. 100% success rate, Kiki. They cut 100% of those teeth in half.
0: And got stem cells out. That's exciting.
1: Well, I guess that's the more important rate of success. You're right. You got me there. Yeah. The important thing, it's four times the amount you could typically extract from pulp, which usually uh, shatters it. And To quote Dr. James Ma, who's the team leader, he says, Saying the test results were promising is a gross understatement. This guy, he's not afraid to talk about how good the work is. Getting back to the quote. We realized we'd invented an extraction process to produce four times the recovery success rate for viable stem cells. The potential application is enormous. End quote. We'll have to see about that last part. The next step for Ma and his team is you got to preserve the stem cells. They got to develop a cryogenic process. And then they got to thaw and then they got to see if they can get these stem cells to do anything, which is what I think is going to be the challenge. But I do agree. It was an amazing rate of success and an innovation and a funny name, Toothcrack.
0: Yeah, I wonder though if it can also be used for paleontological research. We know that teeth are a great source of ancient DNA, and if you can access that DNA more sterilely,
1: Goodness, you gotta call your boy mom. See, that's good. You're good. Because you know, I'm here talking about the funny name, and you're like, come on, Dalen. Doesn't matter about all those tooth. You gotta go with the old school tooth. You're right. What an amazing archaeological resource.
0: Exactly. Hmm. Hmm.
1: All right, now we're moving on. Scientists making human intestine from rat intestine. All right. Pretty exciting work. So this group, this is in Nature Communications. There's a lot of diseases like Crohn's, you know, short bowel diseases so-called. It makes it harder for the body to absorb nutrients and has many complications. One common solution is a bowel transplant, but come on, not a lot of intestines lying around. And as with all transplants, you know, you have the immune rejection issue. So there's an impetus there. There's a real strong rationale for being able to make intestine in vitro and and if you think about it like kind of the other tissues that have putatively been made in vitro like bladder or others it's a relatively simple structure although maybe the simplicity of the anatomy of the intestine belies the complexity of the biological activity in there but we'll get to that there is a strong impetus to make intestine in vitro so they went for it and they did it they had this two part process the first thing was they took a rat actual rat intestine and they decellularized it this was made famous with this decellularized heart idea i think came mm-hmm. out of minnesota years and years ago but they've been decellularizing things over the years and putting stuff back in them i don't know that they've done the intestine yet but now they have they decellularize it they use a scaffold there that protein scaffold that's left behind with no cells on it and they seeded it in a two fold process first they seeded it with Intestinal epithelium derived from pluripotent stem cells, I should mention, and when that intestinal epithelium grew in, they then next seeded with endothelial cells also derived from pluripotent stem cells, and they allowed those cells to grow together, and they implanted them into these immunocompromised mice, or I think they transplanted back into the yes, they transplanted back into the rat. This is after the tissue survived for about four weeks. It could survive about four weeks in the rat, and it was able to absorb and transfer nutrients and showed a lot of other functional methods proving that it was like integrated. So I think that's pretty nuts. I don't know, you gotta have to have to ask the rat how how that was, you know, indigestion wise, but like it seems like it's pretty much a cinch now. I don't know why yeah. you wouldn't be able to do a very similar process with maybe cadaveric even intestines. You decellularize get rid of all that immunogenic stuff, and then repopulate with induced pluripotent stem cells, addressing a huge unmet need with these short bowel diseases. So if you've got an upset stomach, Kiki, I might have a solution.
0: Yeah, I had a friend in high school who had a sudden intestinal problem, and they had to take out, like, it was a significant portion of her intestine had to be removed. (laughs) And so from that, you know, that changed the way that her digestion worked from that Point forward, and if there were a transplantation that could have taken place to replace the damaged, diseased tissue, it could have changed everything.
1: It could have changed her life. Yeah. So sure She's still living with that, right? Yes. I and mean, you don't come yeah. back from short bowel. It doesn't Ooh. get any longer. It doesn't keep growing.
0: No, that's it. Yeah. Oh, man.
1: Well, you know, you can lose your bowels. You can lose your hair.
0: Oh, yes, you can. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Neither of those things are funny. One may be a little bit more to comic effect, but it ain't funny. A team of scientists from Mumbai, they may have uncovered a cause for permanent hair loss. They found that overexpression of a protein called phospholipase A2-2A can cause hair loss in mice. These mice express high levels of uh, phospholipase A2-2A, and they were induced to do so, and they showed progressive hair loss that commenced soon after birth. Hair loss began around 18 days post-birth, and by 22 days, they lost most of the hair. Then, hair regrows around 27 days. That's five days later, it regrows after it's all, almost all gone. But then, it falls away again about three weeks later. They go through this cycle over and over. Hmm. So, speaking of India science where this a study out of India, Mumbai. Sanjeev Wagmar, professor at ACTRAC and leader of the research team, said hair loss was occurring due to loss of the functional hair follicle stem cells, which are present in the bulge region. And the hair root that produces hair throughout life. Quote, when the secretory phospholipase protein is overexpressed or present in high quantities, it causes rapid and uncontrolled proliferation of the stem cells, leading to an abnormally formed hair shaft. And as a result, the mice kept losing hair soon after they grow them. So they're studying phospholipase A22A-mediated signaling mechanism and find it plays an important role maybe, in alopecia, uh, and that's, uh, you know, something that's a major issue in humans. Mm-hmm. And this may be an insight into novel, you know, therapeutic interventions that we may take towards that disease. Besides Dr. Wagmire, the team included Gopal Chovaitia, Raul Sarate, Ragava, Sankara, Nilesh Gawas, and Vinit Kala. The research is partially funded by the Indian Council of Medical Research, the researchers have published their findings in the journal Scientific Reports, and not coincidentally, they are all quite bald. No, I'm joking about that. <laughs> They're not quite bald. They might be bald. Not all of them. I'm sure they have some hairs, but, you know, some of us are quite bald or getting there. Yeah. I'm nervous. My hair is what I'm all about, Kiki. I am my hair.
0: I know. I've got a lot of <laughs> hair, too. I don't want to lose it. But I wonder with this, these... These mice, they would lose their hair and then grow it back. In hair loss, you know, in male pattern baldness, these human issues, you just lose your hair and the follicle dies. So I wonder what the difference there is, whether this protein is involved in that pathway toward follicle death or...
1: There is that. You know, it's funny. When I see an ACE at the end of a protein, I'm thinking, okay, you're doing a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not a transcription factor. You're an enzyme. An you're enzyme. working it. Yeah. And now you're overexpressed. So, you know, the myriad complications of overexpressing a phospholipase, you know, I'm just saying, maybe mechanistically this is a little bit off target. I don't know that we're going to have something that's going to cure baldness, uh, that, you know, male pattern baldness. But, hey. It's pretty cool that they go totally bald and then it grows back. It's got to be a way to use that for something.
0: Yeah. I recently discovered also bald guinea pigs. Mm. And bald guinea pigs, when they're born, they have hair, and then they lose it. And it, uh, they lose it from their rear end forward. Oh, my. And then their hair's just gone, but they never grow it back. I haven't looked into this previously, but I wonder if guinea pigs are a model. These bald guinea pigs are a model species for human hair loss. If anyone out there knows, I mean, I know I can Google it, but let me know. I don't want to have to Google everything.
1: And send us a picture of the halfway point, too, please. (laughs) I would love to see the butt of a guinea pig.
0: Yeah? (laughs) Cute little guinea pig.
1: With like a furry collar. I bet it looks like a
0: lion. Right? That would be very cool. All right.
1: Halloween coming up.
0: That does it for our roundup, everyone. But right now, our friends at Stem Cell Technologies want to remind us that if you are interested in learning more about leukemic stem cell development, they are offering a webinar presented by Dr. Susan Imren that's entitled Targeting Self-Renewal Function in Normal Hematopoietic and Leukemic Stem Cells. Dr. Imren is a senior staff scientist from Fred Hutch Fred Hutchison Cancer Research Center, and she will discuss the factors affecting the balance between self-renewal of hematopoietic stem cells and leukemic transformation. Stem Cell Podcast listeners can view the recorded webinar at www.stemcell.com slash targeting self-renewal. That's stemcell.com slash targeting self-renewal. All is one word. The Stem Cell Podcast and Stem Cell Technologies are very pleased to welcome Catherine Coombs, Assistant Professor of Medicine at the University of North Carolina Medical Center. Catherine is here to talk to us today about her work and her recent paper in cell stem cell on the subject of clonal hematopoiesis. Catherine, welcome to the show.
2: Hi, thanks, I'm happy to be here.
0: We're excited to be talking with you today Can you start off by telling our audience and us a little bit more detail about yourself and the focus of your work?
2: Sure. So as far as myself, I am a a hematologist oncologist by training. I did the bulk of this work uh, during my fellowship, uh, which is my uh, medical specialty training at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. My primary mentors while I was there were Ross Levine and uh, Mike Berger, who served as the co-senior authors on this paper. Essentially, the gist of the project was based upon a large institutional effort at Sloan Kettering Cancer Center to perform personalized medicine for patients with advanced uh, solid tumors, and really across all cancer types. But our primary interest was looking at patients with non-hematologic cancers, The method that we use to examine clonal hematopoiesis among this large population is something that uh, the institution refers to as the impact assay, and essentially that just stands for integrated molecular profiling of actionable cancer targets. The gist of the assay is that it's a a um, next-generation capture-based sequencing assay that um, looks at all coding exons of a large number of genes thought to be important uh, within cancer pathogenesis. The first version of the assay was 341 genes. The later version, which is the majority of patients within our paper, was 410 genes. But essentially, it encapsulates all the major players uh, that have uh, subsequently been shown to be important in clonal hematopoiesis. The assay essentially does paired sequencing of the patient's tumor, whether it's a biopsy from a primary site or a metastatic site, with paired match normal blood sample. And so essentially, back in 2013, uh, which is the first year of my fellowship, the interesting discovery that came about when we were doing quality control checks of the assay is that we found something somewhat unexpected, which is that patients essentially what we were looking for, the original intention of the assay was to look for tumor somatic mutations, meaning mutations that were present in the tumor that were not present in the blood. The other anticipated scenario and the uh, original intention of doing the paired blood sequencing was that there would be some mutations that are present in both the tumor and the blood, and those would be. You know, provided that they are at a high variant allele frequency, or VAF for short, are germline mutations. So essentially the unexpected uh, finding, which is uh, what became uh, my project over the next uh, few years, was that there were mutations in these patients that were present in the blood that were not present in the tumor. And so essentially that is um, this phenomenon of clonal hematopoiesis, where you can identify a leukemia-based mutation in the blood of a patient who does not have leukemia From that point forward, I went on to, you know, develop a systematic way to identify these mutations uh, with uh, immense amount of support from my co-first author Amit Sahir, and then I spent a lot of effort characterizing the patients with these mutations to look for associations with uh, various clinical variables, in addition to prospectively following uh, the patient cohort for outcomes um, such as uh, the development of a subsequent overt hematologic malignancy, um, in addition to examining whether or not having these mutations in the blood can uh, lead to inferior survival. So first,
1: Dr. Coombs, let me say, as someone who arose from New York and ended up in North Carolina for a short stint, I understand your journey. And I have to say, (laughs) I'm jealous because it's getting cold here and it's going to stay warm there for probably another two months. That is if you don't get hit by a few more hurricanes. But on to the work, because, you know, that was a mouthful and this is a big idea. It's not just a huge amount of work here to be you know specific is 8800 individuals 8810 individuals um, but to get at the idea and just to be perfectly clear here is the idea here that patients who are being di- are coming in with whatever solid tumor non hematological malignancy is it that they the cancer that they have that they're coming in with is predisposing them to a hematological kind of premutation Or is it that everybody pretty much out there pretty much has a baseline of these pre-malignancies? Can you clarify like, what the meaning of that is? Is it like the chemo that they're getting for the solid tumors that's giving them this clonal hematopoiesis phenomenon?
2: Yeah, that's a great question and something that's come up a lot in having uh, discussed this work with a lot of other individuals. So we know that these mutations are just a part of normal aging. The nicknames that they've given to this phenomenon you know, one of them that didn't end up sticking was ARCH, standing for age-related clonal hematopoiesis. So some of these mutations come up with aging, independent of any prior cytotoxic exposures. So the most common players with respect to age-related mutations are DNMT3A, TET2. The, however, what we learned through following this large cohort is that there are other mutations that do seem to have associations with prior both chemotherapy and radiation therapy. So I think you know, a subset of the mutations would have happened regardless of the patient's cancer history, because this is a known phenomenon of aging, and aging, you know, is uh, common in, in patients with cancer in general. It primarily is a disease of uh, older adults. So of course, there's some variability within cancer types. But there's an enrichment for certain subsets of mutations given the history of therapy exposure. The majority of our patients in our cohort had prior cytotoxic exposure, whether that's cytotoxic chemotherapy or radiation therapy. And so one of the questions that we asked is are there any associations with these prior um, cytotoxic exposures? When we looked at clonal hematopoiesis as kind of a binary event, either present or absent, we did demonstrate that there's an association with clonal hematopoiesis and prior radiation therapy, potentially causative, you know, but obviously an association doesn't necessarily prove causality. We did not find such an association with chemotherapy looking at clonal hematopoiesis as just a binary yes-no event. And I think uh, one of the unique aspects of our paper that had not been uh, delineated in some of the prior works on clonal hematopoiesis is that we looked at um, unique characteristics by individual mutation. And so we essentially looked at the top five most common mutations within our cohort. DNMT3A is far and away the most common event, um, which is similar to the other really large-scale uh, populations, and that mutation on its own does not seem to be associated with prior chemotherapy. But then when you look at two mutations in particular, TP53 and PPM1D, those mutations do seem to be associated with prior chemotherapy, which actually makes a fair amount of sense. TP53 has a you know known and well-established role in the pathogenesis of therapy-related myeloid neoplasms, whether that be therapy-related AML or therapy-related myelodysplastic syndrome, and there's a one of my favorite papers by uh, Terence Wong uh, that came out in Nature in 2015. Essentially, looked at the specific pathogenesis of these therapy-related myeloid neoplasms and were able to identify, you know, the exact uh, same TP53 mutation. I think like three to six years prior to the diagnosis because they had banked blood on these patients, and so that is. An association that really makes sense. We know that that mutation in particular um, seems to be the driver of patients that get this certain subset of leukemia. PPM1D actually was not a well appreciated gene until recent studies, one of which came out um, in the New England Journal earlier this year, I believe, by Ben Ebert's group. And essentially it was a study looking at molecular predictors for outcome in patients with myelodysplastic syndrome. And PPM1D came up as a hit on that study uh, for being associated with therapy related myelodysplastic syndromes therapy related just meaning that the patients have had an exposure in the past to either chemotherapy or radiation therapy i think some of the mutations are related to the therapy not all of them are and i think the the age related ones the ones that have come across in the non cancer based studies as the most prevalent are the ones that we can't blame the cancer on we just blame the fact that the patient has uh, aged and you know it's just had more time to accumulate these events
0: Earlier, you mentioned that you've got these non-hematologic tumors and you've got these mutations and this different population of blood cells basically within the blood due to the clonal hematopoiesis, but they don't necessarily have the same mutations. Is that what you said? Or is it the mutation that's coming, the clonal hematopoiesis that's leading to this non-hematopoietic tumor?
2: Yeah, so for the patients that have uh, the clonal hematopoiesis, which is about a quarter of the patients, these are mutations that are just unrelated to the non-hematologic tumor. So essentially, you know, when we have paired sequencing, there's a given set of mutations identified in the tumor, and so the interest of this paper is to look at whatever mutations occur in the blood, and the ones that occur in the blood, by default, for us to even identify them as clonal hematopoiesis, can't be present at any significant burden within the tumor tissue. If they are present in both tissues at a high enough frequency, then the assumption would be that those are actually germline mutations, meaning something that the patient was born with. I mean, there was certainly some cross pollination as far as the mutations go because there's no perfect tumor biopsy where you only get the tumor. It's a known phenomenon that some tumors have a significant uh, proportion of uh, leukocytes infiltrating the tumor tissue. And so, you know, within our filtering schema, we developed a, a method to essentially call clonal hematopoiesis only in uh, patients that the mutation is uh, significantly enriched in the blood as compared to the tumor, because it's not always detected at a 0%, but it should be a much, much lower uh, variant uh, frequency within the tumor. Otherwise, the assumption would be that it's a germline variant.
0: And from this, can you get into describing a bit of this process of clonal hematopoiesis? Like We've got insults. There's either therapeutic, or maybe somebody's a smoker, or maybe it's just you know, mutation as a result of aging. But what happens to lead to this clonal population?
2: I think it's primarily just chance. You know, the as uh, stem cells age, just in a stochastic fashion, mutations arise. Some arise, but they don't have a survival advantage over the other stem cells, and those ones don't expand. But the ones that arise by chance that do have a survival advantage And again, this is primarily within uh, the genes that are either involved um, in uh, DNA methylation, such as uh, the dnmt as the tet 2s or in uh, genes that are inherently chemo-resistant. And so those are the TP53s and the PPM1Ds. Those are how they survive and persist and subsequently expand. TP53 is a good example. The mutation likely just happens purely by chance. But the ones that essentially outgrow their competitor stem cells and, you know, subsequently form this clonal population, the reason that they're outgrowing is because whatever insults are happening to the bone marrow, such as the chemotherapy, the radiation, you know, the other stem cells may not survive as well as compared to the more fit clonal population. I can see
1: the connection here between age, and I don't know that there's much we can do about that. But in terms of like a protective element for, let's say, if you're in chemo, in the context of chemo, is there a way you can have some kind of prophylaxis against clonal hematopoiesis in that context? Or the second half of my question would be Is there a way in, let's say, an aged population where there's not much you can do about precluding the clonal hematopoiesis? Is there a way that you can cull these clones? from the circulation, because presumably they're mobilized, yes? Is there a different kind of phenotype or some other way that you can target this population to try and have a therapeutic effect?
2: Both interesting questions, Um, neither of which I think I have uh, the 100% right answer, but hopefully with time and uh, a lot of other smart minds working on it, maybe that'll be in the future. With respect to your question, you know, obviously no one can prevent aging, but for these ones that may be more associated with chemotherapy, I think it just depends on the scenario by which the chemotherapy is being given. Our patients had advanced solid tumors, and that obviously is the main priority. The risk of developing a subsequent hematologic cancer through the selective outgrowth of these you know, bad clones is more theoretical. And so I think sometimes there's not really a choice about whether to give chemotherapy or not. But when there is a choice, primarily in the adjuvant setting... So, for example, you know, a woman who has an early-stage breast cancer, sometimes it's not a definitive right answer to give her adjuvant chemotherapy depending on the individual uh, clinical setting. And so one thing that potentially could be done in that setting is if it's um, kind of an on-the-fence decision about whether to give chemo or not give chemo, you could look to see if someone has a low level of these dangerous clones, and that could weigh into the risk-benefit discussion for that individual patient where chemotherapy is more of an optional you know, thing as opposed to someone who has no other choice. Knowing that adding an additional insult may allow for selective outgrowth of uh, the clone with uh, a proliferative advantage or, you know, inherent uh, chemo resistance. Regarding the other question about how to call clones from the circulation, I don't know about that. Um, I'd love to speculate, but that's not one that I even have a a good or intelligent answer for.
1: While you're at it, can we increase my brain growth as well? And I want (laughs) to cure (laughs) the baldness.
2: (laughs) Yeah, and stop aging. So, you know, no one wants to All the
1: things.
2: (laughs) You know, one of the other things that we've talked about just in the more theoretical sense is for these more age-related mutations, there is some data that hypomethylating agents can be particularly effective in patients with myelodysplastic syndromes, for example, which is one of the cancers that clonal hematopoiesis can evolve to when it evolves to an overt malignancy. And the data suggests that, you know, hypomethylation may be particularly important for patients whose myelodysplastic syndrome leads to a hypermethylated phenotype. So that would be a, a TET2 mutation, for example, and there is some work um, done on that. And so one of the things that we've thrown around in ideas is, gosh, for these patients with these higher-risk mutations, you know, would a low dose of a hypomethylating agent be of interest? That initially was attractive when we thought that this phenomenon was a more rare event, but essentially with deeper sequencing, we're finding out that this is so common that I'm not overly enthusiastic about exposing a lot of patients to a potentially toxic drug, given that the absolute incidence of a bad outcome, meaning a hematologic cancer, is actually really low. I mean, it's predicted to be about 05 to 1% per year based on other studies that preceded ours. Our absolute risk was a little higher, just given that our cohort was receiving ongoing chemotherapy and, you know, is a little bit higher of a risk. So as far as whether there's any intervention that can be done, um, I think it's something worth continuing to think about. But the problem with all of the newer generation studies are included with deeper sequencing is that you can actually find this phenomenon, essentially in anyone, if you look hard enough. There was a, a paper, I think, that came out in, I think, Major Communications, but I could be wrong, that did ultra deep sequencing that found it in 95% of patients, some sort of DNA or TET2 mutation.
1: That's to say that there's some small percentage of cells circulating in you that have these mutations. Is that right?
2: Yeah, exactly.
1: I see.
0: So I was just going to clarify. So this clonal hematopoiesis, it happens. And most people, there's a certain percentage of your blood cells that are going to have a different, some mutation.
2: Yeah, some mutation, exactly.
0: It may or may not lead to a malignancy at all.
2: Yeah, I mean, more often it does not. The absolute risk in the two studies that came out in the New England Journal at the end of 2014, over their study follow-up periods, which was like somewhere between two to eight years, was four percent of patients with mutations got hematologic cancers. So, like 96 percent of patients don't get them. That's a worry, but it shouldn't. It's not the only story. I mean, I think the the interesting finding. From our paper and the, the other papers in non-cancer populations is the detriment to a person's survival from having a mutation. So the non-cancer populations have, you know, done really elegant work uh, that has associated having a mutation with an increased risk of cardiovascular disease. And, you know, the mechanism of that is a little bit over my head, but they've done mouse models with tattoo knockouts. There may be increased plaque patients in our cohort, it's a different story, which is why we obviously wanted to pursue the project. No one with advanced cancer is dying from a heart attack. They're dying from progression of their cancer, which was the case for 98% of the patients in our cohort that died. I think the mechanism by which these mutations lead to shorter lifespan is something that really needs to be examined more. You know, we suggested one possible hypothesis that perhaps there's some sort of cell non-autonomous interaction between these clonal hematopoietic cells and the the cancer cell in the tumor microenvironment. But that obviously needs a lot more work to really be played out. But it doesn't seem to be related to the cardiovascular mechanism um, that was elucidated by the other large-scale clonal hematopoiesis uh, population, which was primarily in patients with diabetes. So those patients, essentially depending on the population that you have, patients are going to die from different reasons, and our patients aren't dying from heart attacks.
1: It's an interesting Anyways. connection that you bring up because I recall that study, and one idea is that it's like myeloid-mediated cardiac remodeling in these kind of micro-scale tissue remodeling in the heart, and you kind of alluded to this idea that it could be a niche-derived factor. I mean, is that one of the ideas? Could you elaborate on that, that maybe that the pre-mutation is maybe changing the niche? Is that out there, or did I just make that up?
2: We made it up as a possibility for the tumor microenvironment, as far as the cardiac mechanism, I thought it was more of a plaque-based
1: Well, I'm mechanism. saying it's ideas that I think are extending from the, the findings of plaque. I think cardiac remodeling is another hypothesis that is mediating this tattoo 2 mediated phenomenon, increasing oh, in these patients. But, I mean, it's just early days, and I think that just as opposed to the cell-autonomous idea, that it may be a non-cell-autonomous idea, I mean, with blood circulating all through and having all these interactions with multiple niches. so. It's just interesting hypothesis.
0: So finding out that this, the clonal hematopoiesis does have an effect on these patients who have non-hematopoietic tumors and their survival, it has an effect on it. How can we use this moving forward?
2: The one caveat that I'll throw in is the survival effect that we had, that was with patients with larger clones. Um, so when we look at everybody with a clone, it did not have an effect on survival when you adjust for other clinical parameters like age, gender, smoking. So it was in this subset of patients that we call CHPD, standing for essentially clonal hematopoiesis and presumptive drivers, which is when the mutation is present at a frequency of 10% or more in a, a region of a gene that is thought to be important as opposed to you know, just a, a random gene that we don't know if that's actually potentially pathogenic or not. The finding of the inferior survival among that subset of patients, one, I think it can inform risk we get to the point where these mutations are routinely discovered, um, I think what we could tell the patient is that if, if it's a low frequency mutation, I think you could actually calm the patient down somewhat because it's only the ones that are present in essentially 20% or more of the leukocytes, assuming a heterozygous mutation, that are the ones that lead to these inferior outcomes. And that's pretty similar to the other studies that used exome sequencing. I mean, primarily, you know, most of the pathogenic mutations that they were uh, picking up were at a, essentially at a, about a similar variant frequency. But for the patients that do have the mutations, I mean, we know that's bad, but, you know, I don't think we know enough about why it's bad. It's possible that the mutation itself is leading to increased accelerated progression of the cancer. But, you know, I think the alternative hypothesis is that maybe these patients have these large burden mutations because of all the insults they've had in the past. It's very difficult to say, you know, kind of a chicken or the egg argument about is it the mutation that's bad or is it what led them to get the mutation that's bad. But, I mean, we know that this is a higher-risk group, and so essentially, they're not already being monitored frequently. That may be a reason to watch these patients a little closer, knowing that their survival is likely inferior to their uh, counterparts who do not have these mutations. That being said, the majority of the patients um, with advanced cancers are being followed uh, pretty excessively regardless. And then we also know that these patients are at a higher risk for subsequent hematologic cancer. And so for the patients that aren't already being monitored frequently for, you know, whatever underlying cancer they have or say this is applied to patients who no longer have active cancer, if they were, you know, treated in the curable uh, setting, that would, uh, to me, advocate for more uh, regular hematologic monitoring, knowing that there's a risk for a subsequent hematologic cancer, much akin to patients with other precursor states, such as EMBUS, which is the precursor to multiple myeloma, MBL, which is the precursor to CLL, et cetera.
0: Yeah, it's with this whole idea of personalizing the medicine based on the genetic mutations.
2: Yeah, I think that that is an interesting possibility. I don't think we're quite there yet because I don't think we can prove that the mutations themselves are, are what are leading to the inferior outcomes. could be whatever led the patient to get that mutation, and so then targeting the mutation doesn't take away whatever led them to, to get it. Obviously, we try to control for some of the relevant clinical variables um, in our survival model, so like age and smoking, we're controlling for those things, but there's still a lot of unmeasured variables that it's hard to blame the mutation itself. I mean, that's obviously our, our theory, but I don't think we know that yet, so I think it'd be maybe a little premature to kind of throw on a, a targeted agent to a mutation and you know, an individual without really understanding the pathophysiology by which survival is uh, inferior in the setting of the presence of the mutation. Um, wow. I'm, I don't think we can say it's
1: causative. So you sound to me, right? I just heard between the lines there is you're a bit short on the whole personalized medicine thing. I'm not putting words in your mouth, but let me just get to another kind of new wave thing because you were at MSK and I've, heard, I've been following this story about Watson. Watson, you know, becoming the engine of IBM's next generation revenue stream in terms of diagnosis. And uh, I recently heard that the problem with Watson is that it was pretty much just getting blanket diagnosis across all the centers, which is essentially filtering the advice coming from these bigwigs at MSK that are running the program. Where do you come down on, one, the future in terms of AI, if not also personalized medicine, in treating these types of diseases from a diagnostic standpoint?
2: I'm not down on personalized medicine. I actually think it's really important, and I think it's a step forward in a field that has uh, not had as many advances as we all obviously had hoped for with all the money that's been spent on cancer research. The reason that I'm not enthusiastic for, immediately enthusiastic about it for clonal hematopoiesis is we don't know if this is a disease yet. It's a precursor. So anytime you give anybody medicine of any kind, you risk causing them side effects. So the treatment shouldn't be worse uh, than the disease. And so I don't see clonal hematopoiesis by itself as a disease yet. For overt disease states, I'm all for uh, personalized medicine and trying targeted therapies, but I think uh, I have hesitancy in treating a precursor state knowing that, you know, the majority of patients aren't going to have an overt manifestation of their disease. There may be a lot of indirect manifestations, the science of which I think still needs to be played out. That's my opinion on personalized medicine for, one, clonal monopoiesis, but personalized medicine for overt cancers that are negatively impacting the patient's everyday life causing them symptoms, major morbidity, mortality, I'm absolutely all for it. Um, As far as Watson goes, I don't know all the details of the program, but I do know essentially what it does is it identifies whatever mutations are present in a person's tumor, and that's exactly what MSK impact, this this assay. The intention was, and it's obviously a a huge effort that they're still using. They uh, published the experience from sequencing the first 10,000 patients uh, this year. And somewhere along the order of uh, 11% of patients had a mutation identified that subsequently was targeted. Sometimes that works and sometimes that doesn't. I think it's the only way to, to move forward uh, within the field is to try to make these advancements, but they don't all work out. And I think a lot of that has to do with tumor heterogeneity. But I think you don't know if something's going to work or not work in, until you try it. Watson, I think, is just one platform by which you take a huge amount of information and then try to give it in a format that a clinician can understand. So I think that's the way to move the field forward, and I think some things are going to work and some aren't. And I think none of us are smart enough to know that de novo, and that's why we have to try all these new things um, to see what works out and what doesn't in order to uh, keep the field moving and hopefully get exciting new advancements.
1: Well, you're keeping the field moving, Dr. Coombs. I have to ask, are you now just strictly clinical over there, Hemonc at UNC, or are you still in the lab?
2: I actually never worked in the lab. The nice thing about doing research with uh, genomics is all this data gets generated by other people, and so I just uh, analyze it and then look into the clinical correlations. But I don't do the sequencing myself, but I work with a lot of smart people. I did my uh, internal medicine training at Duke and always loved North Carolina. As much as I love my colleagues at New York, it was not a very friendly city. And so that's how I moved uh, my way back. But UNC, I'm doing uh, about half of my appointment is doing uh, research. We have a huge institutional protocol, very similar to MSK Impact here, where we do next-gen sequencing on patients with advanced cancers. We're also on the RNA sequencing site for the Cancer Genome Atlas. So there's a ton of resources here to continue on um, my work genomics and looking at the phenomenon of uh, clonal hematopoiesis in patients with cancer. So probably about half clinical, half uh, research and hope to continue that long term.
0: We hope that you're able to continue it long term also because it looks like you're coming up with some really great answers. And so hopefully those will help in eventually leading to great treatments.
2: Well, thank you. Well, it's been such a pleasure to talk with you both.
0: Thank you so much. Really appreciate getting this time to speak with you.
2: All right. Well, thanks. All
1: right. That was Dr. Coombs telling us about clonal hematopoiesis. I really tried to pigeonhole her there, tried to make her say a bunch of stuff, and she just had to keep on being like, yeah, no, what I said was. But I, I we finally got back to center there, and uh, I have much more clarity on what she's talking about. And I think what yeah. we're talking about is just changing the level of resolution on disease, finding these pre-drivers. And with increased revolution, may- resolution, we'll be able to maybe predict which of them are more or less dangerous. And please, Dr. Coombs, email me and tell me what I said wrong there and I will correct it. I apologize for misperceiving and presenting your ideas.
0: (laughs) She was a rapid fire interview. A lot of great information there. Such a, yeah, brilliant mind. And so it's wonderful to have people like her looking at these big questions of, I mean, I honestly had no idea about Clonal hematopoiesis and the issues that are potentially related to it. So, this is eye opening for me. But it's time now. First, to close this show, let's have a good old SCP rant. This rant is our chance to complain about something that bothers us and that most likely bothers you. So, Dalen, what are we ranting about today?
1: I want to do it in a delicate way. This is a rant that needs context. And I want everyone to understand that I am not here to weigh in on the issues underlying this movement. Because I agree wholeheartedly with all the sentiments. Maybe just the presentation has me a little bit alarmed. I'm talking about hashtag me too. And just generally speaking, all the outrage. I've been reading some articles online to try and get like conceptualized and put into words why I'm so uncomfortable with it. And what amounts to bottom line is I think that people are spending way too much time voicing outrage for the group so that everyone can see and they get something out of it. But really, then there's nothing left to do for them in real life. You know, I feel like they're they're drained. They're fatigued of the outrage. And so there's a lot of posting and not a lot of doing. It's a similar idea we had in previous rants. Kiki, I'm in delicate ground here. Please tell me what you think. As a woman (laughs) who's really has maybe more of a deeper understanding of this, is this something that I can get angry about at all?
0: Oh, I, think the, I think you know, what's happening is this, maybe there's this cathartic release that a lot of women are experiencing on social media, sharing the fact that, yeah, me too. I've been affected by this. Where silence has been traditionally that the way forward, now people are standing up. And so it's eye-opening. It's this thing that's allowing more people to see and to maybe understand that this is a problem. And hopefully it'll move forward, but it's the anger and that outrage that ends up in this social media echo chamber that is the problem because it gets magnified and then people are busy yelling at each other. And this whole Me Too hashtag, it was actually a woman 10 years ago came up with the Me Too hashtag in support of sexual assault and abuse in the African-American female community. And so there are people even getting angry that white women are co-opting the hashtag from its original use. I mean, it's just anger getting pushed on top of anger, which, you know, at a certain point, what are we going to do? Awareness is a big step forward. People being aware of it, huge step forward. Yes,
1: I can't be angry about that. But
0: what do we do in the workplace?
1: What do we That's not, that's what I'm saying, Keith. This is what I hope. I don't, I'm not active on social media and I'm no, you know, I'm not an activist period. I want to disclaim that, but I really hope that I have the courage if I were to see something in the workplace to stand up then. Yeah. You know, I don't feel so bad about not being vocal on social media. I'm going to forgive myself for that. But if I were to yeah. see it happen and to let it happen without voicing that, would be a true act of cowardice. And I hope everyone out there who's posting would, you know, act similarly and stand up then, you know, and maybe, maybe not post that day, you know, take a break from the online outrage, do something.
0: Yeah, and maybe part of doing something is not immediately emotionally responding, but thinking, just sitting back and reflecting on what it all means to you and your life and how you are going to act moving forward. Maybe, right. maybe that's it. Yeah, let's let's be l- outrageous. It's cathartic. It's good to get things out. And I'm glad. Yes, I'm glad. Yeah, this is a rant. Is
1: this is what we do. Outrage. And by the way, we, can yeah, I tell, I could rant it's all good. day about these assholes. <laughs> I can curse when Ooh. it comes to this. I could rant all day about them, but there's plenty of hate on them. And I, hey, they deserve it all. Let's right. talk about them after. But the people don't need to hear any more about that. I'm gonna save that for you
0: and me. Oh, oh yeah, the self-righteous people standing up and saying, "What, a bad, what do you mean, me yeah. too? I never did anything. How come so and so turned me down for a date?" And blah blah. blah. And it's like, oh, you just stop,
1: go away. Did you see the Woody Allen thing? Oh, oh my God! There's so much. Allen there's guy. so oh. much.
0: There's so much. Yeah. So. All right. Let me stop. Let me. Whew. Stop. We can be outraged, but let's take it to something real. Let's do something. Everyone. Message. Message. Yeah, be sure to send us your rant ideas on Twitter at stemcellpodcast or email info at com, And don't forget to take our survey at stemcellpodcast.com. All right, Are we still doing that? Am I still on the hook for all that money? <laughs> I don't know. It's it's in the script.
1: $80. <laughs> $80. <sighs> oh, my God. Someone's going to get paid. I don't even know what the deal is anymore, but I'm putting aside. I'm going to start a savings account for this thing.
0: Right. <laughs> all right. That concludes episode 103. Be sure to tune in for our next amazing episode of the Stem Cell Podcast. Thanks, Dalen.
1: Thank you, Kiki.